But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please bless my preaching to be true to your word, to your purposes, and to your guidance for our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. (coughs) So last week we heard Deacon Lincoln preach on the verses that immediately preceded this passage in Matthew, where Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so what we see is as the teaching continues on, I'm sort of building on what Deacon Lincoln preached on last week, um, is that Jesus gives us sort of uh, examples in flesh. What does he mean by a righteousness more righteous than the Pharisees? What we see in the Sermon on the Mount, fundamentally, is that the Old Testament law is just the barest sketch of the righteousness of God. And this is the best metaphor I can come up with, this imagery of sketch. Think of the difference between, on a canvas, um, a pencil outline and then a full, you know, fully colored oil painting that has all of the details and the colors and the shadows and the textures. So different is the description of God's righteousness in the Old Testament and the New. The Old is just the sketch, it's the outline. Look, don't, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. And yet we see that the human heart can't even keep that. But what we see in the revelation through Jesus Christ is that the righteousness of God is far more than just not committing murder. It actually pertains to the inner life as well. And those who read the law spiritually, even under the Old Covenant, understood this. Um, but the Pharisees in Jesus' day didn't. They just latched onto those externals. And that's what Jesus condemns them for, right? Like you wash the outside of the pot, but the inside is still filthy. Right? You've paid attention to these out, outer details of the law, but you haven't caught what it's really about. So Jesus teaches us, that's why the Sermon on the Mount is so famous, non-coincidentally, a mountain, right? The law comes down from a mountain. The Sermon on the Mount preached on a mountain. Jesus reveals what are the interior demands of the righteousness of God. And so it is the full color painting. So the, the sketch says don't murder. Jesus says don't express anger. Not don't communicate your anger. It's different than to say, look, I am angry. That's a blessed thing to do. That builds a relationship. But to say, ah, you fool. That's what Jesus condemns. As bad as murder. And we'll be careful with that as bad. Um, as offensive to the righteousness of God as murder. The Old Covenant says don't take a false oath, pencil sketch. The full color picture is don't take any oath at all. Speak with such integrity that your yes is yes and your no is no. The Old Testament says don't commit adultery. Jesus says the righteousness of God, that's just the bare sketch. The full picture of that is don't even look at someone with lustful eye. Now, I want to admit up front, this is an awkward verse to have picked for the sermon. Um, If you're squirming, I am squirming a little bit too. But I I really feel led to preach on this particular verse for three reasons. One, um, because we live in an age where ever increasingly the sexualization of images and the normalization of um, sexually explicit material on streaming services and all these things, it's just, I mean, it's been, the dam has been breaking for a 60 years, but it's continuing in the public sphere. But also because I believe that um, failing to receive this description of the righteousness of God, this truth from the scriptures, is 
probably one of the biggest stunting factors to spiritual growth in our times. That while it's impossible to seek to live in the light of Christ and to be growing in Christ while filling the eye with darkness, they actually, the one actually impedes the growth of the other. And so it's a sort of a tragic comedy to think, well, I'm going to grow in spiritual life, but this thing, this uh, disobeying this command of Christ has been normalized. It can't be. And I say all this because, and this is the third reason, is this is a big part of my story. When I was 18, um, I was a freshman in college. Uh, the date, I marked it forever because, as you'll see, it was the second, a very important date for me, December 11th, um, at the end, near the, nearing the end of my first semester in college. And I went to a Christian college, uh, and I was praying with some friends one, one evening. We didn't do that every evening, but it was just one particular evening. Um, and while we were praying, I felt the best way I can describe it is like I just felt like I was like spazzing out. So my friends started really praying for me. They actually called some other guys over and they're praying for me. And I, I don't recall doing this, but they told me later that I actually was like shrieking. Um, and what I remember is this vision. All I remember is actually what I was sort of through faith and imagination, like what I, where I was in my headspace, was this picture of this thick black cloud like smothering me and light just peeling that black cloud back and the threat of danger and harm, like just this blackness, this darkness getting pulled off my life. Um, I remember sort of opening my eyes and feeling like I'd been like born into a new universe. I was like, what? And we just cried and sung worship songs for like an hour and a half. It was this crazy experience. And the week after that, actually about a month after that, um, it was the, one of the spiritual highlights of my Christian life so far. Like everything, I was just, my heart was just thanking God for everything that came my way. The sun, the food, the, all I wanted to do was read the scriptures. It was so exciting. And, and I was praying like, Lord, what happened in this prayer night? And two things I really came to discern about it. One is that I really believe that I didn't have this frame of mind at the time, but I, what I see behind the fact is I was set free from a demon that was oppressing me. Um, it's kind of a startling realization. <laughs> um, and then the second thing is I was praying, Lord, I'm a Christian. I was baptized when I was 13. I believe in Jesus. Like, how did I get this like, demon to have like, a foothold on my life? And I was praying about that for a few days. And I felt like the Lord very clearly spoke to me, almost as if an audible voice, but, not aud- but just not quite audible. And what the Lord revealed was because of pornography, that I actually had given the demon this foothold and that I had invited that darkness into my life. Fast forward a few years. Um, when I was 24, I was um, I graduated college. I'd actually was had back living in my parents' basement. Um, <laughs> happens to the best of us. <laughs> um, I was going to this little Anglican church in my town in Wisconsin, and. Um, I'd fallen back into some of those same sins again, non-coincidentally, a very spiritually dry season. Um, and I just felt like such a hypocrite coming to church. So here I am, like, I'm listening to the Word, I'm participating in Holy Communion, I've just been like, I've got this dark secret of secret sins in my life. And uh, something sort of was, it sort of swelled up, that sense of hypocrisy. So the priest, as I was leaving, is a priest my age now, I guess, named Father Phil and Darius. And he said, Ben, how you doing? And I just was like, you know, life's too short, so I just lie your whole life. So I was like, you know, actually, I'm, I'm actually doing really bad. And he said, well, why? I said, well, I feel like a complete schmuck and hypocrite because here I am indulging in these secret sexual sins and I'm coming to church and I just, 
I feel awful. I feel disgusting. And he just looked at me. He didn't flinch. He just said, well, are you sorry? Like, are you re- do you repent of this to God? And I said, yes. And he said, and we were outside the church. We're like in equivalent of like in the narthex. We were kind of just up in the walkway. I said, yes, I am sorry. And he says, then get on your knees. I said, why? And so, so I got on my knees. Um, and he had memorized what I should have memorized. Um, I got on my knees and he just looked me in the eye and he prayed the prayer of absolution. He looked me in the eyes and he said, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy, oh no, no, it's this one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given power to his church to absolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in him, of his great mercy, forgive you all your offenses. And by his authority committed to me, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I, the best way I can describe what happened is like a heavy backpack that I like cut off my back. Um, and that was the day when I started going to confession regularly to a priest. I now make confession at least a couple times a year. Because the power of having someone else proclaim, you're forgiven. What you did is very offensive to God. It's deserving of hell, in fact but you are forgiven. I'm so grateful for Father Phil and his ministry to me that day. It still wasn't fully until I was um, 26 where God had finally given me grace in the moment of temptation of lust to pray, Jesus, save me. I'd learned when I was 13, the only way out of temptation is pray, Jesus, saves me. I've known that in my head since I was 13. <clears throat> temptation, I never would remember. I'd never remember to pray that. And so I'd always fall into sin. Um, and the thing the Lord used was regular Holy Communion and the daily office that created this, norm, this sort of pathway of prayer so that in the moment of temptation that day, I would remember, Jesus saved me. And so from that year on, now whenever I'm tempted, the Lord's helped me remember Jesus save me. And I just keep praying that until the temptation passes. And when it comes back 30 minutes later, Jesus save me. Save me. And every time I've ever prayed that in the midst of temptation, he has saved me. And the glory is his. And so now for this past 11 years of my life, um, I live in a way very similar to the way uh, a brother or sister who has alcohol in their background lives and is in recovery. Never taking a day of sobriety as it were or purity for granted but every day saying lord i know exactly what i will plunge into but left when left to my own devices today i need your help today i am not strong i am weak and i need your help and never assuming on well you know i've had x number of years sobriety or purity or whatever no 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 i need grace for today and the dozens of habits the lord has worked into my life to help rescue me from Uh, 13 years of sinful misery. Um, You know, whether it's the sign of the cross, habits of the eyes of just looking down at the ground when I'm kind of out in big public places, never keeping any secrets from my wife, whatever they are. These many, many habits the Lord has used to continue to reach out to him for grace. And the important difference, and this is different than the way I was raised in the Christian life, the fact that God brought some victory over temptation now doesn't make me righteous. I'm not righteous. I'm not a priest because I'm some righteous guy. I just found the, the right medicine, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and his saving help in the hour of temptation. Who I was at 13, 18, 24, 26, that's still me. I'm still a sinner. You don't sort of get to draw a line in the sand and say, oh, no, we can just forget about that bit. That's why I love praying, Lord, have mercy, because I, I need mercy. I need forgiveness for those sins, and I need rescue in the present today. The Old Testament law at the level of the letter doesn't condemn me on this front. The righteousness of God, as described in the Son on the Mount, is what, would, is what condemns me. But the righteousness of God isn't just describing a standard we can't meet. As it says in Romans 3, the righteousness of God is also what makes us righteous. That's the free gift of the gospel. That's why I keep praying day after day, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, because I want his mercy and his righteousness. And the wonderful thing is if, using this art image, if the pencil drawing is the Old Testament description of the righteousness of God, the Sermon on the Mountain is the full-color painting of the righteousness of God. Participation in Jesus Christ through faith, that's not an art piece, that's the real thing, of which the art is the copy. We actually participate in his pure life, for real, when we reach out to him in faith. And it, there's a sanctifying opposite that if to look at a woman with a lustful eye is to commit adultery in the heart. The medicine is to look at Christ and by faith be plunged into his righteousness in the heart. It's actually the opposite. It's the medicine. That all we have to do is look to him with a longing for forgiveness and rescue. And his righteousness is made ours. The liturgy puts on our lips us in the situation that we are framed in the gospel. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. So I pray that as we heard the very strong words of Matthew chapter 5 this morning, I pray that um, you would not forget the very high standard of the righteousness of God. But not lose heart. Not despair. The distinction in the scriptures that worldly sorrow leads to despair and says, what am I going to do? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Just repent and reach out in faith to the Jesus who forgives us and will provide rescue in the hour of temptation if we cry to him. Amen.